the text that we are reading won't necessarily be, we won't uh, discuss that text verse by verse in this session. It may be, I think in every session it'll be referred to, one of them will, but I want to give you just a broader picture of the basis behind what we're saying. So this session we're going to begin with Luke chapter 10. And uh, in last session, we began with the sending out of the 12. This is the sending. Jesus sends out the 72. Very similar. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Go, I'm sending you like lambs among wolves. Do not take a bag or a purse or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If someone promotes, that promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will remain with you. Stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcome, eat, with, eat what is offered you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and you're not welcome, go into the streets and say, even the dust of the town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. For be sure of this, the kingdom of God, of God has come near you. I tell you, it will, be more, it will be more tolerable on that day for Sodom and Gomorrah for this town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles were, por- were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And for you, Capernaum, you will receive, uh, you will be lifted to the heavens. Will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you'll, be, you'll go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who has sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions, to overcome the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Last session we talked about how do you pick a team. Now we're talking about how do you connect with people? How do we teach people to connect with people in the towns that they're going to, and even how do we, how do, in that selection process of how do we do that. So this time we're going to talk about target, proclaim, and serve. And, and Wes is going to start with target. All right, so am I on? Check one, two. You don't sound like you're on. There is a button on there. Yeah. Am I on? Can you guys hear me? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> All right. So on targeting, um, Jesus commanded the disciples in Matthew 10, uh, verses 5 through 8. I'll read this. It says, These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go My among the Gentiles or else. enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out the demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Okay, so Jesus gives this very specific command to uh, his followers here. He says, go to the lost sheep of Israel. 
Now, that was their commission at that time. Later on, we know uh, that that commission is going to be opened up to the rest of the world. We read about that in the Great Commission. Uh, but for these guys, their command is essentially go among these people, do ministry, and then continue to work with those who respond favorably. That is the principle we need to operate from. When we talk about targeting, where do we go? Go among the people, do ministry, and then you work with those who respond favorably. Now, you're talking about selecting a place to plant a church. Where should you go? Where should you go? I suggest uh, go where people are like you. Make that your first option if you're going to plant a church. Uh, Ed Stetzer and Warren Bird uh, did a big study. Uh, a few years ago, it was the largest study on church planning in the United States that has ever been done. They went through 120 PhD dissertations. They went over countless studies, uh, all kinds of data. Uh, at the end of the day, these two very smart guys who uh, took all this data and, and, and just kind of boiled it down said the way forward for evangelism and disciple making in the United States is through regional church planting movements. And what they meant by that was local churches, not church planting organizations that get you together and give you personality profiles and then make teams that don't work. Uh, what they said was to get local churches to take ownership of their region and then move systematically regionally where the church plants can support one another. I think that's a really good strategy. Now, what's hilarious is I read that study before I came to work with the crossings as I was discerning whether to come work with the crossings and what that would look like. And when I got here at the crossings, guess what we're doing? We are doing regional church planting movements where we are training teams and we are moving slowly regionally where we can support one another. We still do retreats together. We still do ministry together. Uh, he mentioned uh, we get together on Wednesdays for our staff meetings. Guys, do you know, uh, how I, I've been in ministry for 20 years. I've got a lot of friends that uh, have been in ministry with me that are uh, colleagues of mine and friends of mine. I am one of the only guys that I know, I'm in one of the only situations where I know I can go every week and get together with other leaders that are in the same church culture that I'm in, that know the same people, that are pulling the same direction that I can get feedback from. And if I'm being a fool, they tell me I'm being a fool, right? I've got the, that kind of relationship with them where we can do that. Um, the pattern, though, that I want you guys to get here, go among, do ministry, and then work with those who respond favorably. Uh, now, they were called to go among the Jews. We're called to go among everybody. In Matthew 28, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That's all people. Who are we called to reach? All people. How are we going to do that? Start out regionally. Okay. The easiest thing you can do is go and reach people like you. Did you know that? It is a lot easier for you to reach people like you than people that are not like you. If, you plan a, if you're going to plan a church... If you've got a bunch of people that are socioeconomically middle class, you're not going to go plant a church in the rich part of town and reach a bunch of people. Right? If, if you are white and everybody on your team is white, you're probably not going to move to the, to the black part of town and reach a bunch of people. Maybe, right? Maybe we would. 
Okay? But I'm, I'm, did you guys know I'm black? Did you know that? <laughs> Took a personality or uh, one of those DNA tests and found that out. Now I tell everybody, I am 5% Nigerian. Here's a good movement strategy, I think, for us uh, to think through. Acts 1.8 it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When you're thinking of selecting a place to go, I think it's easiest to start with your Jerusalem. Your Jerusalem is the place where people are like you. That's where you should start your ministry. If you want to plant a church, find your Jerusalem. Find a place where you can start a stable ministry where people are like you. When your ministry is established and stable in Jerusalem, start looking to Judea and Samaria. Okay? What are the areas right around my Jerusalem? Okay, so if my Jerusalem is St. Louis, my Judea and Samaria might be a Wentzville. It might be a Collinsville. It might be one of these other places around here. Where is somewhere we can go that's not quite where we are, but it's, it's over there, right? But it's not to the end of the earth yet, right? It's going to be my Jerusalem and Samaria. Then, after my Jerusalem is stable and my Judea and Samaria is stable, my ministries, then I'm going to move to the ends of the earth. This is where I'm going to start looking at maybe foreign missions, in the future down the road, right? Foreign missions, if I'm moving to a place where people are not like me, that takes something called cross-cultural missionary skills. That's something that has to be developed. That's something that has to be trained. That is a lot harder to do. So we don't start with that, right? We don't start with the foreign missions. We start with their neighbor. And that's how we want to start. If you're here and you're trying to figure out what the next move for your church should be, in terms of church planting, I want to recommend you start with Jerusalem. Find somewhere that's close to you. If you're going to plant, don't plant in Portland if you're on the East Coast, right? If you're going to plant, plant somewhere that's close enough to a stable community where you can get the support and get the help you need, right? So you can get, make that a stable church with people nearby that can help. And then as you get stable, you move out from there. Yeah, I'm going to start with a really bold statement. You guys okay with that? All the well-intentioned, motivated Christians with all the resources and finances in the world will not make a beautiful church plant. Church planting, disciple-making movements, DMM, all of these phrases are trendy right now. They're buzzwords across churches. And in a lot of ways, that's a good thing because people are talking about this more. It's, it's now popular. It's now cool to go on a church plant. Um, I remember uh, hearing, hearing some of my mentors when I first became a Christian telling me they, re they could remember a time when youth ministry wasn't cool and campus ministry wasn't cool. Well, a lot of people can say in the not-too-distant past that as they saw their churches dying, they realized, man, something's got to change. And so now the cool way to change that is church planting and disciple-making movements. But the thing that's sad to me, it makes me think of one of my favorite movies. It says, you keep using that word. I, don't, I do not think it means what you think it means. And the word is disciple-making, or the phrase is disciple-making. And, and guys, I don't know, you know, I'm... I'm, I'm Glad that Wes talked about the target, but guys, let me just put it to you simple. If you're not reaching unchurched, lost people, you're not making disciples the way that Jesus sent his people out to make disciples. 
Now, can you call disciple-making, taking someone who's already in Christ and developing them in maturity? You can put them in Bible class after Bible class. You can send them to Bible school and get a Bible degree. And you can call it disciple-making. And technically, are you correct? Yes. But this is not the life-saving, world-changing, turning-the-world-upside-down plan that Jesus had. And so it makes me think of another movie. And they had the real-life version of this recently. You may recognize Ariel here combing her hair with a what? A dingle hopper. A dingle hopper. That's right. Uh, otherwise known as a fork. Okay, she's not using the fork the way it was intended to be used. She's combing her hair with it instead of eating food with it. And guys, we have, we have unfortunately, in my opinion, a lot of churches with lots of resources, lots of money, lots of backing, and they're ready to go plant churches across the world. But they're dingle hopper churches. They're dingle hopper disciples in those churches. Guys, uh, Robert said it earlier. You will only produce what you are. You plant corn from Missouri and Kentucky, it's going to grow corn. If you're not making disciples where you are now, you won't make disciples just because you go on an exciting church plant or a disciple-making movement is your new mantra. This is really a relational thing. And it can't be undersold, the importance of the connection that we all make. And another thing that we can't undersell is the message that our church plants proclaim. The message is key, and that's what I'm going to talk to you about now. The message, the gospel that we proclaim will determine the type of converts or the type of disciples that you make. You need to write that down. The type of message that you preach, the type of gospel that you preach will determine the type of disciple or convert you produce. Did you know that Jesus gets all over the most religious, the most well-versed in the scriptures? They're called Pharisees. He gets all over them about the way they're converting people. And listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Notice what they do. He gives them some credit. You travel over land and sea. You actually win the convert. You win a single convert. And when you have succeeded in that, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Whoa. And guys, if you've never had someone disciple you, and then show you how to disciple someone else, then what are you going to do when you get on a church plant? You can have all the money, all the support. You can put a team of 100 people together. And if there are 100 people that have no clue how to make disciples, you know what you might do? You might have enough talent to attract other church folks. But you, and you might have the illusion of success but you're not going to see unchurched people come into Christ the way that Jesus dreamed and envisioned it. Do you know, we learned two truths from this passage. The first one is this. Being a church leader and having lots of Bible knowledge does not equal a healthy disciple maker or a beautiful church plant. Secondly, you produce after your kind. If you're not reaching lost people now, the change of location is not going to fix that. 
I want to give you the message that we need to be proclaiming. It's the one that Jesus started out with at the beginning of his ministry. And as he uh, resurrects from the dead and spends the next 40 days, look at what he says he focused on and preached to these guys. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says, After uh, his death, Jesus showed the apostles a lot of convincing evidence that he was alive. And for 40 days, he appeared to them and talked with them about what? Say it. God's kingdom. In Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus says, the very purpose I was sent for is to preach the good news of what? The kingdom. Guys, and this is so important that you don't miss it. The Greek word for kingdom is basilia. What it means is not, um, and, and Matthew tends to say kingdom of heaven over and over and over. The other gospels tend to say kingdom of God. And the reason for that is Matthew was preaching to a Jewish audience who didn't like to overuse the name of God. It's kind of like in the, in the movie Lion King when uh, Mufasa's name is, is called out and then the little uh, hyenas go, ooh, Mufasa. You know, it's like, you know, they're excited. And so Matthew is a little different, but they're synonymous concepts and they literally mean not heaven one day out there some Somewhere that we'll go to one day, but the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God refers to the rule and the reign of Jesus, the king of kings. And so this message literally that we need to have in our church plants is not this soft Jesus is a savior only gospel, but that Jesus wants to be Lord and when he's Lord then he can be savior. Not without him as Lord. Jesus has a question. It's not up here on the, on the screen. But Jesus asked this profound question once upon a time. And he said, hey, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? Jesus was always interested in being the king of kings and calling people into that relationship with him. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul understood this very well. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. There are two kingdoms. You're a part of one or, one or the other. That's the message that we bring to people. You don't want to be in the kingdom of the air like everyone else. When you're under that lordship, when you're under that kingship, life falls apart. Life is a disaster. It is chaos. The one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy is in charge. So guess what happens? He says, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. But the message was always about the kingdom. Paul goes on to the Colossians in, in chapter 1, verse 13. He says, For he has rescued us from what? The dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. Now, why is this significant? Let's say you get on a church plant and you start reaching out to somebody. And then suddenly they say, well, you know, I like these Bible studies that we're doing with you guys. And by the way, guys, we take... Everyone that is a part of any of our churches, we take them through all of the same Bible studies. It is uniform. It's duplicatable. But all of them, from the very first study to the very last study that we take people through, discipleship and calling people into a surrendered posture to King Jesus is embedded in all of them. 
So let's say you're studying the Bible. Some of them say, well, you're telling me my daughter who is attracted to girls um, is not going to go to heaven? What do you say about that? And man, the studies have been going so well. And now you're, you're sort of tempted to sort of back off of those positions or not want to talk about it or not want to mention it. Or let's say this happened in our church plant not that long ago. We had a couple that were living together. And we started studying the Bible with them separately. The wife, I'm uh, sorry, the, the, not, it wasn't a wife. They weren't married. But they were living together. The woman, we started studying with first. And then the guy came on later. And as we started studying, we get to the sin study. And they say, what well, does that mean we can't live with each other anymore? What was the answer? What does King Jesus say? And we don't back away from that. And these were people that had lived with each other for 10 years. You could find all kinds of justifications. You could think, well, in some other states, that's common law marriage. It'd be legal. Well, none of that. That's not the message of kingdom. Kingdom says, figure it out. You know what else kingdom says? If you need a place to stay, my couch is right there. Oh, you know what? The kingdom might actually say, you know what? You know, take my bed. I'll sleep on the couch. But see, this is the message of the kingdom. And guys, if you think getting into a church plan is not getting down into that kind of stuff all the time, where you're having to call people into to account to, to surrender to King Jesus in really real ways. By the way, they not only did that, they started going through pre-marriage counseling. We baptized both of them. They, they separated until that happened. I married both of them. And not only that, they were both addicts. And we went to their house and flushed, their toilet, uh, flushed the drugs that they had remaining in their house down the toilet. And they gave me the drug paraphernalia in a box. I still have it at my house. I hope the cops don't come to visit me. <laughs> But guys, that's the message of the kingdom. And you don't have to back away from that kind of stuff. You step into it and you call people into this saved relationship. But it's not just about being saved, guys. It's about surrendering to King Jesus. I have so much I want to say to you. Um, but I, I'm not going to because then Robert will not have any time to talk. You're and that would be good. detrimental. But um, You're good. You're still good. In John chapter 8, verses 31 through 32... I want you to hear these words that Jesus says to people, notice, to people who believe in him. Now, if you go back, we don't have time, but just do it on your own time. Go and look at the things Jesus has already said to them, and they're still good with him. He's already said some really hard things. But for some reason, what he's about to say in verse 32 is going to really tick them off, and it's going, to turn, it's going to turn them against him. And by the end of this chapter, they're going to try to throw rocks at him to kill him. But this is where it turns. Jesus says to the Jews who had believed in him, uh, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There's so much in this. What I want you to see, though, is what he's indicating is that there's such a thing as someone who might consider themselves to be a disciple, but they're not really his disciples. Someone who is really his disciples, you will see in the text, you'll see kingdom. Someone who not only knows the truth, but is allowing that truth to then transform them and set them free. The problem with this audience, though, is they go, we've never been a slave of anyone. Don't you know who we are? We're Abraham's descendants. Jesus sets them straight and says, actually, no. If you were Abraham's descendants, really, you'd love me and you'd listen to me. But as it is, you listen to your father, the devil. Guys, the message 
is that of surrender. This watered-down gospel nonsense that's out there saying, well, you can sort of just kind of ease into the kingdom. You can sort of squeak into the kingdom. Listen, without surrendering to King Jesus, that is not a thing. In order to be in the kingdom, you have to be surrendered to the king of that kingdom. And that's the message that our church plants have to have. And I'll end with this. There are some marks of a real disciple. You can write these down. The first one is a real disciple. If you're preaching a kingdom message, which is the message that Jesus preached, that Peter preached, that Paul preached, that all the models that we need to look at preached, you will find people that are repentant. Do you remember what happened in that famous passage there in Acts chapter 2? Repent and be baptized. Right before that, what did he say? God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and what? Lord. Anointed King, Christ. The message of the kingdom brought about a group that said, what do we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you. The second thing that a message of kingdom will bring about is it will bring about an eager disciple. If you read this, you know that Titus, uh, Paul tells us here in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, God revealed his grace of the salvation of all people, that grace instructs us, that grace instructs us to give up the ungodly living and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present world. He gave himself for us for two reasons. The first one, to rescue us from all wickedness. He's Savior, right? But that's not all. And to make us a pure people who belong to him alone and are eager to do what is good. You do not want to create disciples with a soft, watered-down, non-kingdom gospel that you're going to have to beg to do everything that they should be doing. They should be internally motivated by the grace of God to do. You don't want that kind of church planter on your team. You want someone who the Spirit of God is boiled up and they can't help but do what they're doing. And you'll have to, if anything, you'll have to slow them down. And then the last two, the disciple with a kingdom message that they respond to will be an abiding one that produces fruit. In John 15, I think he's talking about two types of fruit. The first one is the fruit of the Spirit. That's your character development. The second type of fruit would be the fruit of other disciples that you will make. If you have a disciple, if you have someone that says, I'm a disciple, but I don't make other disciples, they are a, um, what's that word for the little fork again? A dingle hopper disciple. <laughs> Guys, if Jesus, if being a disciple means becoming like Jesus, and his primary thing that he did was make disciples, you don't get to go, I'm a disciple that doesn't make disciples. That's a dingle hopper disciple. It's not a thing. And then lastly, they're going to love. And, you know, Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another as I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're what? My disciples, if you love one another. Here's, here's something for you. Robert said that none of our, all of our churches, a requirement of our membership, and a lot of churches would gasp and say, how do you ever do that? We have 100% participation in our small groups from our members. Do you know why? Because in order to be a member at our churches, you have to be a part of a small group. We don't have another way of shepherding you and holding you accountable. And you're free. Look, we don't say that you have to be a member with us. You're free to go somewhere that gives you the buffet Christianity where you can take what you want and leave the other. You're free to do that. But, man, we're trying to change the world. 
And that takes some accountability. And that takes love. And you can't love people that you're not with. And so we want to be with each other. I have a lot more to say, but I'm going to shut up. All right. right. Love you guys. All right. All right. So again, just let me kind of uh, review what they've said or or maybe just uh, you're going to target where you're going to go. Uh, For us, that are places within the Midwest right now. And uh, so we will be selecting our city in the next few months. And our church will play a huge role in that. I can't overestimate how incredibly beneficial it is to do the church the selection area the way that we do it as a planting church because you have buy-in from junior high students who go out to spend a weekend in a city that they're going to say we want to go here and I can still remember my 13 year old granddaughter going out on the very first plant watching or going out on the first selection process and as we happen to be intersecting as they were starting to go on the, inter- on the interstate, she has turned to me, Kennedy, you got some of you guys know her. Uh, she's my granddaughter who's gonna give me a great granddaughter sometime in the next 30 seconds. But if, <laughs> if you see her, you'll know what I'm talking about, okay? But uh, she, was, she turns to me and she, her eyes are lit up and her smile is lit up. And then the other, two or three other kids seem, and they just turn and wave and they're so excited as they went to the eventual place that we selected at, the, at University City for the Interbelt plant. And so we will select that, and for now, we're looking at places like Cape Girardeau, Missouri, Carbondale, Illinois, Evansville, Indiana, Springfield, Illinois, Champaign, Illinois, uh, some places in Kansas. We don't know where we're going to go yet, but we know that it will be a place to where they will have a campus ministry for certain. That's the one definite thing and a very similar feel of, of this area. Uh, we want it to be a diverse area because we are a diverse church. But as we'll talk about this, this connecting with people, you're going to target who, you're, who we go to. You're going to proclaim the message of the kingdom. Uh, and, and again, I can't overstate how important it is. Guys, so often that, that we will compromise having a disciple just so that we can have a dunk, right. a baptism. And we have a little cliche around here. It's not about the dunk. It's about the death. Yeah. Because you can jump off a high dive and have a baptism, but nothing spiritual happens. And so making sure that you're proclaiming Jesus, as Mackie said, spent the last 50 days of his ministry talking about the kingdom. He began by talking about the kingdom. The book of Acts that we're doing to be continued series, I'm reading through it, and I'm reading in the very Acts chapter 1 to begin with. I'm going to start off in Acts chapter 1, then it says he, Jesus spoke about the kingdom for those days, talking to the apostles. And what I think he was doing, he was challenging his church planting team one final time to make sure that, you're, that you have Jesus as Lord. I think he was talking to Peter. He says, hey, Peter, remember that rooster thing? <laughs> you know, you see Peter go, oh, yeah, I do. That, that stuff can't be happening now. You're going to be the leader. Uh, remember that wash my feet incident we had? That, you remember, I think I said something like, get behind me, Satan. And Peter goes, yeah, I remember that. You can't be acting like that anymore. But he's teaching them to model the message that they will be giving. And the truth is, if you don't do that, if you, if you give the gospel of Jesus to where he is Lord and King, in Acts 2, this Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified has been my Lord and Christ. The Jewish mind would have read that as Lord and Savior. Now the word Messiah means king or anointed king. But if you read anything, if you watch the chosen, you see when they thought king, they thought Savior. They're going to save us from the Romans. But there is a double call to submission in Acts chapter 2 where he says he's Lord, that's master. He's Lord and he's king. Both positions of authority that require submission. And it is strange that what we do is we take the 
Jewish twist on Messiah, Savior, and that becomes our primary emphasis when we proclaim Christ. So you have people who have embraced him as a Savior, and who doesn't want saved, but they're not living as a Lord. So you go to those cities, and you, you, you make sure that you are, now you're in your city, you've got to pick where you're going to go. You're proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The good, it's good news that there's a new king. Man, my life was a mess. I almost destroyed my life in my teenage years because I was the king of my own life. And finally, through a series of stupid actions and breaking relationships and, and, you know, and just foolish things that, that jeopardized my future, I realized I couldn't ruin my life, and God took, I gave it to, to Jesus, and he took over. It is the best news that Robert's got a new king, and it is for them too. Don't take that away from them by giving them something like a new vice president, okay? You know what I mean? Just some kind of position that sounds good but doesn't call the shots. Give them the kingship, all right? And then if we're going to connect, we connect by serving. Now, in the text that you read as Jesus sends them out, it is significant that he gives them the power to do miracles, to heal, to cast out demons. And there are two reasons why you see, anytime in Scripture when you see a changing of authority, you see a spate of, of miraculous events. You don't see it consistently through, through you know, it, it looks, if you read it, you can go, well, it's everywhere. But the truth is, it's usually when an authority, a new authority shows up, or an authority has to be ver- validated. And the primary purpose of miracles you see in the New Testament was to validate, validate the messengers as being from God. But I don't think it was the only one. I think that when Jesus healed the sick, he definitely was displaying his power from God, that he was the arm of the Lord. But I also think that Jesus had compassion on people. The Bible says in two places that Jesus looked at the crowd and he had compassion. In one place it says he had compassion on them, so he began to teach them. In another passage it says it had compassion on him, so he fed them. Compassion shows up in a lot of ways, but if you're going to connect with, it, with the new place you are, one of the great ways to connect is through serving, through having acts of compassion and commitment. And here's the thing, ministry has an incredible ability, service to the community, service to the people in your neighborhood, both as individual small groups and as a church, we embed certain ministries in our plants as we go out, and we do it strategically. I've mentioned to you that every place we go, we have a campus ministry. And we don't do that just because we have some, you know, weird kind of, you know, fascination with campuses. But if you look at our church plants, about 95% of our people, of the 120 people that we've sent out, about 95% of them became Christians in either our high school or our college ministry. It is very logical to just think, hey, if, you're gonna, if, you're gonna, if, if you want somebody to go out, those that are, that are upwardly mobile and those who are looking to begin a new phase of their life are very likely. And so it is the ability to reach people at a very formative time when they're young, which the chances are much higher before 20 than after 20. And so we, we do that strategically, again, because we are trying to target a group of people that is going to help us make our, do, do our job with the limited abilities that we have, quite frankly, to do it as well and as quickly as we can. But you see, ministry will, will do a couple of things when we talk about it, and not campus ministry per se, but there are some ministries that we strategically embed. We have a teen ministry, and again, the reason we have a teen ministry is not just out of compassion, but in our culture now, the world is so busy, it is super difficult to, to have adults engage. 
especially adults that don't know you. But what we know is if you love a teenager, and teenagers are always wanting to do something, they're always wanting to get involved in something, if you love a teenager, there's a likelihood that their parents, there is a great chance that their parents will like you. Love a teen, your parent will like you. And so we you set up a teen ministry, not just to reach teens, although that was part of it, we set up a teen ministry as a bridge to reach into the adult community. And the Crossing Church, since we have been here, we have had as many teenagers lead their parents to Christ. And I don't mean necessarily study the Bible with them, but they're the ones who got them here and got them connected. We've just had, had as many teenagers lead their parents to Christ as we have parents who have led their, 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 uh, their kid to Christ. Same thing's true in the ministry that I was at before this for 20 years. And I could point to you people probably within this room, there are people who became Christians. If you're, in the, if you're from the crossings, I don't even know who's in here, and if you were the first to come to the church before your parents, is there anybody okay? Who, uh, we got three just sitting right here, okay? That they're the ones that came first and, had a, had, and their parents followed. But there are other ministries that we do that are specifically designed to open up a door. And then the teen ministry is one of those because it helps us, the parents have an ally. When their kid's getting in trouble, when their kid's, we, we've had, you know, my daughter has had people pull her aside at basketball games and said, hey, could you, could you talk to your son about having, you know, could you talk to Malachi about having my son come over? Because, man, Malachi, my son's a lot better kid when he's, when he's hanging around Malachi. And he's really got some struggle issues that are there. And that doesn't mean any of our kids are perfect. But again, you have this, you have this ability to go, hey, here's a team that's, that, that's, they, that other parents look at and go, man, that's a good kid. That's a good kid. And all of a sudden, they're wanting their kid to have some of those behaviors that are well. But other things that we embed, we, we, when we start our churches, we, we start with, with ministries like divorce care. Uh, because... Almost everybody in this room, in some way or the other, is affected by divorce. Either your parents were divorced, or you know somebody that you're close to that was divorced, or you've been through a divorce, and it's, it is, man, it's so difficult. Where do you get help from a divorce? In, in our culture, if you're divorced, you will marry again, and with a greater likelihood that your second marriage will end a divorce than your first. That just tells you there's not much help out there. And divorce care is one of the, was at one point, I think, our largest pathway into the church. People came into divorce care. They found healing for their divorce. They found out that God still loved them, that God still wanted to use them. And it was amazing what could happen. We, use a, uh, we have a ministry called Healing is a Choice. And healing as a choice is about how do you deal with a dysfunctional family without reproducing it. One of the great things that I'm super proud of of what God has done in the Crossing Church is we have lots of people who came from horrible backgrounds, but it's amazing how many great marriages we produced of people that really shouldn't have great marriages. They should have lousy marriages. In the world, they would have a marriage and a divorce in their, in their, in their history already. But healing is a choice helps deal with some things, and, it's, and a lot of the world is, is broken like that. Uh, there, are, there, there are ministries like the, the Wounded Heart. One in four girls are sexually abused before they're 18. One in seven uh, men are. At the crossings, our ratio is almost twice, twice that high. Almost one in two of our women, our girls, have been through sexual abuse. One in four of the guys. Why does that happen? Because we're very open with our struggles. I, was a, I am a sexual childhood sexual abuse victim. My great-grandfather was a child molester, and his grand boys were his targets. And I'm not proud of that, and quite frankly, I get tired of saying it, 
But we've had numerous people in the source of my ministry come up and say, I didn't think people who had that happen could have a good marriage. Your kids are good kids, and man, and so it opens up, and we're very open in talking about that, and to where people come in. And so, you know, you're, you're trying to say, well, why, people ought to just come out of love for Jesus. They're not coming out of love for Jesus anymore. If they ever did, most of them don't even know who Jesus is in any real sense. But they have felt needs, they have secret needs, but those felt needs can be addressed to lead them to their deepest need, and that is a need for a completely surrendered relationship with Jesus to where he rules their lives and calls the shots, not them. Uh, We have a New Heights ministry, which is an after-school tutoring and mentoring program. We did it for two reasons. Number one, we live in a time to where even those that are uninterested in church are interested. The great thing about the current generation that we have of kids is that they want to help. They want to be a part of something. And so kind of altruistic ventures like that can really be helpful. So whenever we went to Wentzville, initially where we were, we couldn't get the, the, the city was of no help to us at all. They made it so hard on the first place that we were supposed to rent that the place called about a month or two out and said, hey, we can't do this. They're putting too many restrictions on us. So two months out from a church plant, I don't even think it was that. I think it was a month, month or so. They said, we didn't have a place to meet. Then we find a place that will, that will, will rent to us. And so we're doing our stuff. We're growing. And we want to take a double doorway and a non-supporting wall and make it into a four-door so we'll have more flow. And they require us to a, do a blueprint drawing with an architect of the entire, uh, not just our building, but of the entire little plaza that we were in because it wasn't a record. We did it. We spent about $15,000, which to us back then, that was like $10 million because we didn't have it, okay? You know what I mean? It's like a little kid. We didn't have it. That's like $10 million. And then they wouldn't even come and inspect it. But one day, the mayor found out about our New Heights ministry. And he came, and I didn't even know he came out and we watched it. And then he told a guy that was writing an article for a, for, on a, for, a, for a business magazine. And the guy showed up on our Saturday New Heights Renewal Day. And afterwards, he started interviewing people. He interviewed me. He goes, Robert, he goes, it's weird because we were going to just do, you were going to be a paragraph. Now you guys are going to be on the cover. He goes, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in Wentzville. We were on the cover, and for the first time in two years, we walk in to our building on Sunday morning. It wasn't even Sunday morning. It was Saturday, I think, when I walked in, and plastered to our wall is an approval to meet sticker. And they never even saw the architectural drawings. You see, the incredible thing about ministry, it can silence the talk of foolish people, and it can amplify, amplify the voice of the church. So you want to make sure that when you go in, most communities don't want a church in there. You have no tax benefit for them. So you have to find a way to find a benefit outside of that. And so whatever ministries you have, make sure that you are looking through them through the lens of, okay, we want to make sure that this is a, how how does this fit into a disciple-making process? How does this go on? Several years ago, again, and I would would suggest that if you you do this, it helps, and we'd I've done this twice since I've been in ministry. We had our, our, our ministry meeting with all of our ministry leaders, and that includes cell leaders. So when we had that meeting, this is probably in 10 years ago, we probably had 50 people or 60 in the room. Now we would have, you know, 100 or so in the room. 
Well, we put a goal at the very front up here. What's the goal of the church, okay? And you know, we had this thing here. So what is the goal? And pretty real quickly, people say, well, our goal is to make disciples. So what's the goal of your ministry? Well, uh, and then you had people begin to talk about, well, my goal of our ministry is to help feed the kids at the New Heights afterwards and give them good. Well, no, that's not your goal of your ministry. Your goal is your ministry is to help us make disciples. And I said, all of you, I'd, I'd given them a footprint. And I said, what I want you to do on this footprint is I want you, I gave them, I cut out. I said, I want you to decorate your footprint as pretty as you can because whoever has the, the coolest footprint will get free lunch. That's how you motivate a young church is you say that you'll feed them, okay? You know, like they'll, they'll go crazy over, you know, like a McDonald's hamburger. Blood in the water, you know. So there I look at people, they got markers there drawing the feet. And I said, okay, now here's what we're going to do. Everybody, you got your footprints? And put your ministry name down the center, okay? And make it look good. I want all of us right now, we're going to stand up and throw your footprint as close to the target of disciple making as you can. Well, you, these are regular sheets of paper. So you, can you imagine what happens? 60 people standing up with fresh, beautiful, decorated feet that look great, and they throw them, and they just go everywhere. And then one of those instances, I don't remember what it was, one of the instances, the closest footprint to the target was further away than before anybody even threw anything. We went backwards. Says, guys, that's our problem with our ministry strategy, quite frankly, or at least it's the implementation of that. So now let's talk about how we can, let's pick those up. And, let's, and so we spent about an hour saying how this ministry could connect here. And in between every left foot was a right foot of a small group. And we lined them up and literally, if the front of the building where I was speaking was here, the last people that would have been in that meeting would have been sitting about where Zach is. And we were eight foot away from the target. It's the closest we got. When we finished aligning them, we went to the back of our auditorium and we had a footprint stepping easily, even for a child could step and they could follow that pathway to touch, touch the goal of disciple making. What I'm telling you is when Jesus sent them out, his compassion, he wanted them to know that he was the authority. Jesus is not just a good friend, he's not just somebody who is addressing social needs. Understand that. He is Lord and King of lives. But quite frankly, that's how he addresses problems. Again, he can't save some of, some of the people in our church's marriages. You know why? He can't save them because they won't let him be Lord. And you can't have a Savior if you won't have a Lord. So in those ministries, we want to make sure as we go in, we're, we're trying to say, okay, how do we serve? And you can't spread yourself too thin, but make sure that you're spreading yourself into the community both with the authority of God and the proclamation of the kingdom and in the compassion of Jesus as you reach and as you serve and as you care. All right? So we want to, again, we want to make sure that we select our teams and then we want to make sure they're connecting with their community. They're in. We're going to pray, and you got again in about another 10-minute break. And are we lunch now or is it keynote after this? Ten minutes afterwards, so be careful about going into the, auto, into the gymnasium. It's hard to call a gym a sanctuary, isn't it? You know what I mean? <laughs> Let's pray, though, before we go. Father, thank you for everybody that's here, and I pray that our words have been helpful in, in some way, God. And I thank you for getting to share the time with Wes and with, with Mackie. And, Father, I pray that you will bless their ministries, Father, greatly. That you will do things that amaze all of us as you work in our ministries, Father. And, and God, help us to realize 
that all of that happens when we trust you so much that we surrender to you and allow you to shape us and direct us in the way that you would go. Father, when you do that, you not only will send us, you'll empower us. And Father, you will allow us to do more than we could ever imagine. Again, Father, thank you for everybody that's here for their, their desire to spread your kingdom. And God, I pray that you will bless those efforts to the glory of your Son, to your glory, and Father, to the blessing of people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me remind you again, if you have any questions about specifics, write your questions down. And we will, uh, sometime before the third session, we'll take up the ones already. And then in our question and answer, which is the fourth session, about 80% of our time will be spent in question and answer on that, on that time. Thank you.